Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's hosts Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. Welcome to Season 18, Episode 15, powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com. You can listen to our show as well on your favorite podcast network or on YouTube and follow us at on Twitter at HP Radio and at HockeyProspectRadio.com. For the next two segments, we're going to talk about the 2023 NHL Draft. The focus for these segments are going to be on defense and and the defensemen in this draft. And it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, obviously in June, Brad, um, because there's obviously lots of time. We've got another four, four and a half months, maybe five, depending on the player's schedule to evaluate them. Uh, I always find defensemen tend to hard charge down the stretch after Christmas, uh, particularly as we've discussed before in situations where it's, the player's first year in that league. There's always some adjustment periods for them. And it makes sense, actually, in, in this case, when we talk about Oliver Bonk, who plays for the London Knights, because last year, you know, he got 10 games in the regular season, another seven in the in the playoffs. But this is really his full year in, in the Ontario Hockey League. And and thoughts on him, because I always find there's a transition, is they just seem things start to click for defensemen after they get you know, 30 to 40 games under their belt in the Canadian Hockey League. And then it just seems like things click. Now, some defensemen, it clicks right away, but most of them on average, it's around just after Christmas. Thoughts on his game uh, to this to this point? And I know you guys had him, you know, you know, reasonably high on your top uh, 64 list in November, but this is six weeks later. I know you're coming up with a new list soon. So, but thoughts on, on Bonk's play so far? Well, what's unique about Bonk for us is that he's the most polarizing player on our staff. <laughs> so we, we have a mixed opinion, to say the least. Uh, I, I have him. I had him way down. Uh, Jerome was somewhere in between, and Mark really likes him uh, at the top there. So uh, a lot of debate about uh, the potential upside of this player. You know, from a scouting perspective, one thing you want to be able to assess pretty quickly with a player is figuring out what they are going to be. At the, at the NHL level, at a pro level, what what are they going to develop into? And that's been a question mark with Oliver Bonk. He's not really a shutdown defender. He's not really a puck mover. He's not really an offensive defenseman. So he's kind of this mishmash of everything. And that can lead to what you suggested, where you need to watch a lot more and watch them later in the season to see where the curve uh, is going. And that's that's I'll start with the curve. I mentioned the curve because it's been a positive curve. Uh, I, I thought Oliver really struggled in my initial viewings, and that's par- primarily because he was mishandling the puck. His puck management was all over the map, and he was largely stationary at the line in the offensive zone. What's unique about him being stationary at the line is that sometimes you have players like Matthias Havlid that when they're stationary, they still get good results because right. of the quick release point. Right? He can he can shoot really quickly off his catch and release. That gives him a fundamental advantage when he is remaining still. In the case of Oliver Bonk, uh, we have talked about this off air. We'll talk about it on air, and that's his coordination is not cut up with his frame yet. So there's a clunkiness, a stiffness to him. So when he's trying to release the puck, he has to be uh, much more reliant on exaggerating his posture, leaning into his shot. The problem with that is it telegraphs the release point for right. the defense in front of him. So he, ha- when as a scout, what we do then is you have to weight his agility at the line 
more so than somebody like Matthias Havlitz because it's going to have to be more pronounced. So for him to be stationary and not have a fast uh, a, a wrist shot or a fast catch release is really a problem when you look at his offensive ceiling. However, I mentioned the curve. He's starting to show improvements at the line. He's starting to understand how to manipulate the first layer. He's starting to use hesitation fakes. He's starting to use uh, stutter steps, side steps, uh, even lateral cutbacks he's starting to incorporate. That said, he's a bit of a clunky skater. The coordination's not there with his crossover, so it's it's not as fast as you want it to be. There's a bit of a delay still, but at least we're starting to see now some Progress. projectable o- offense, right? Right. The other aspect that has not been updated though and i absolutely think it needs to be is one of the reasons i'm a bit lower on him is when you're 6'1 200 pounds don't just be reliant on your stick and he is he's not a physical defenseman and he doesn't have hard skill meaning it's he doesn't know how to leverage himself with his stick positioning when he's trying to take a player out during a box out he he has started to cross check on the hip line he's starting to lean on players but it's he he's a one gear defender and so when you're playing at one, one, pay, uh, one pace, you really want to see more variation within the defense. It's not there yet. So that's the big one. That's the big takeaway for me and, and what we need to monitor. Let's take a look at uh, Jakob Dvorak. And unfortunately, he had a broken collarbone mid-November. Uh, should be back in a few weeks, two to three weeks um, of the airing date of the show. So uh, I know you guys had him in November, around 35th overall on your list. Now, thoughts on his progress and what you you're hoping to see once he comes back. Cause sometimes there's some tentativeness, but he's a big boy, six, five, he's well over 200 pounds already as a 17 year old. Um, so thoughts on what you saw before the injury and what you're hoping to see once he returns to action. Well, you mentioned that he's a big boy, six, five tons of range, right? Range. You can't teach. So range is a very valuable asset. It's, one of the most important aspects for defense that's honestly publicly we're not really discussed very often. I don't really know why you look at Victor Hedman. It makes sense why range is significant for some of these defensemen. Uh, In Dvorak's case, you're looking at a prototypical third pairing shutdown insulating defender, right? That's, that's the projection with him. The question is, can he hold within that projection? And in order for him to hold, you look at the retrieval rates, you look at his exits. My biggest area of concern with Dvorak before his injury was that he was having a lot of difficulty shaking the forecheck. And what I mean by shaking is not incorporating deception as he's picking up the puck to put the forecheck off balance. Now, there's a caveat to that, which is this is a young kid. He's 6'5". He's growing into his frame, which means when he's trying to turn a corner, he's inadvertently putting himself off balance occasionally. So right. he doesn't have the physical base necessary to incorporate what he's going to have to learn. That said, when he has attempted it, the timing hasn't been there. That's more of an instinctive issue, and that's harder to correct. So what I'm looking for in his return, I want to see I want to see him incorporate deception at a higher rate. I want to see him a bit be a bit more clean within his exits. And the big thing with him is when you're when you're a prototypical shutdown guy, you, you gotta be tenacious. He plays. I don't want to say reserved because that's not fair, but he doesn't play at that extra highly competitive level that I like to see. That's more. As you know, the ma- the makeup of a player is very difficult to switch during the season. That's one where you're in the offseason, you got to sit down with him, you got to have a discussion about the type of player he needs to mold into. Um, but I- I'd love to see if hey, I've been proven wrong before. Maybe he comes back and is a, a house on fire. That would be great to see. Yeah. Uh, but there's a there's there's raw potential there, and I emphasize raw, which is all these players. Bonk is raw. Dvorak's raw. The players we're about to discuss are very raw. But he- he's an interesting player. Well, certainly, and you got you know. 
most defensemen are going to take five to six years to develop into a solid NHL player in the first place. Uh, last guy we'll talk about in this segment is R2 Karki. And thoughts on him as well, because he's a tall, lanky defenseman who I, I think has some raw potential as well, playing in the U20 uh, team for Tampera. Thoughts on him, you know, through before Christmas and then what you're sort of expecting coming out. And because I know you guys are starting to discuss your next list. And I'm curious to see you had him at 40th where he, where the progression goes. Cause it's not always about him. There's always players around him that move him, move him in, in and out of that line, uh, that ranking as well. Just thoughts on him overall. Yeah. Karki, we're in a unique position where we're fortunate enough to have a Finnish scout that's located and based in Tapara and Elvez. So we, we get to see a lot of live viewings of him and get reports back to us on his on his uh, progress. Uh, admittedly, this is the player I have seen the least out of anybody on this list that we're talking about today. I only have a four or five game sample, which at this time of the year is very rare for me, to be honest. So uh Take this more of a grain of salt. I'll give you a real report later down the stretch. But what I have seen him from him, I've seen him twice internationally, twice in U20 Saria. Uh, the main takeaways is that this is one of the better puck handlers out of any defender in this draft. So that's the real plus. He also is extremely poised under pressure when he's trying to use the back of the net on his breakouts. So those are two things. When you combine that with the handling ability, it allows for advanced puck protection and he knows how to use the net. So he can he can really manipulate the forecheck in a way that somebody like Dvorak or Bonk that we just discussed can't. Uh, the other aspect to him is that there's more offensive upside than, than there is in Dvorak or Bonk long term. Um, the question mark with him is that, you know, I mentioned that these players are raw, but they're raw in different ways. Right? Dvorak is raw with his deception and physical base. Uh, Bonk is, is raw in terms of understanding how to create a, a more well-rounded defensive game, even though he mitigates risk really well as a defender. In Karki's case, he over he's overly reliant on his offensive skill set and attacks one-on-one at the line when he can't. So when he doesn't have defensive support, he's still going to players. And if it's, if it's going to go the other way, it's a breakaway. So this is, it's all about reining him in so that he can use his offensive skill set at the right time and apply that. The other aspect that's lagging here is the exit well, passing rates. And I agree. Cause that's what I noticed in watching game film on him is that he would just double down. On his strength. Yeah, and exactly. sometimes, look, yeah. look, that that's part of your development, but also there's a time and play. You don't always need to do that in that respect. And that's just a learning curve for, you know, for any young player. And I think in that respect, that's certainly his. A hundred percent. That's that's definitely the case with him. Uh, the big thing with him, though, like Bonk, which has been very positive, is that he was over reliant on his shot quality while remaining stationary. He has started to really uh, understand how to be more agile and use his lateral uh, lateral skating at the line. That's a huge thing for him. But there, there's the way he operates on the power play. He's uh, he's not quick enough yet. And the other aspect is that the exit playmaking has been all over the map in my again limit of I'm four or five games here. I don't have ten to fifteen, which I typically do with most of these guys uh so from that perspective like i could tell you well his exits haven't been very good i have four or five games it's not enough to really know exactly the consistency right there but in my viewing state they haven't been where they need to be so raw but when i look at karki relative to Vorak or bonk i think he's the if i was to guess right now who's the player who gets drafted first it's him and i think it's because he's more like a maxine stirback mold where the ceiling right. is a bit high right well, Brad and I are going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, and we'll continue to talk about the 2023 NHL Draft defenseman right after these messages.
You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back in Powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're continuing to talk about the 2023 NHL draft, focusing on the defensemen. Brad, I want to get your thoughts on Mikhail Gulyayev. Uh, you guys had him at 37 and end of November. Thoughts on what you saw prior and then the six weeks after that. There's obviously obviously a little break in there as well, but he's an undersized sized defenseman at 5'10". Uh, you and I have had that discussion about what's that cutoff point where it becomes just far more challenging for a smaller defenseman to defend at an NHL level. Like, Do you, do you need to be special? to be 5'10 and smaller. There's only 10 of them in the NHL. Uh, Mikhail could obviously get a little bit of a growth spurt and bump up to that, get a little bit more range in terms of size, but thoughts on his overall skill package, hockey sense, and defensive habits overall. Well, to your point, that that's the debate, right? How high does the offense have to be in order to project him to actually play meaningful minutes? And the other aspect with him is the insulator, right? How Does he need a Dvorak in order to be successful? Right. Does he need an insulator and a, on a pairing? Um, because that, that doesn't matter when you're looking right. at. And most do. Trying to, yeah, no, most most are going to have to. And it's, I think it will be more pronounced in the next five years, not less. Yeah. It's going to be it's going to see more specialization when it comes to insulators, which is why Artem Grushnikov, I love him. It's one of the reasons I think Dallas took him as high as he did. I had him there as well. I had him in the late 20s because of it. You need these types of insulators uh, in the coming years. But Shell is another example. Dallas well, is well, and that made, that's a, it's a good point you brought up because. That was the debate we were discussing when um, uh, Samuelson was given that extension in Buffalo. And they said, why would you do that for a defensive defenseman? And I said, well, because he's an insulator. And who is he insulating? Rasmus exactly. Dahlin, right? Yeah, that's exactly There's, right. Like, that's does exactly he make Dahlin better because of what he does? I think the answer yeah, long term for Buffalo is they're hoping yes. So that's why that value, that that's where that value is. So that's where you have to sort of debate, you know, not only these types of players, we're talking about Mikhail, but also the insulators as well. Uh, absolutely. If they have natural chemistry too, then it's a home run. You just lock them up and, and you go with it, right? Because you know Rasmus is going nowhere. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, with, with Guliev, yes, I think he needs an insulator. So that automatically decreases where you put him in a ranking to a degree. Not not to a large degree, but a little bit. You shave him down a little bit just off of that. Uh, the other aspect is offensively, he is brilliant in terms of his technical thinking. There's a player who recognizes weak side backdoor options very quickly. He one-touch processes everything very rapidly. He thinks two, three steps ahead. So uh, again, we talk about adaptive processing uh, or adaptive playmaking, which is playmaking and processing uh, in, during chaotic situations where there's unknown variables you're taking into account. Guliev is exceptional at that. Preset processing means you're mapping out the ice in advance and you're seeing things in advance and then you're finding that option before the defense can respond. He has that in spades as well. So when you look at his processing, which I think is the core fundamental aspect of hockey sense, he has both elements that I look for in spades. And that's, and that's rare in a player. That's very so. rare. Very rare. It's the reason that we care about him because it, it makes up for the limiting factors. And the limiting factor with Guliev is the physical base of the player. He's Just because he's 5'10", some 5'10 players have very different frames than other 5'10 players. Certainly. He has a small frame, right? His frame is small. It's not broad. He's not thick. He's a smaller uh, a defenseman who really doesn't have a lot of – doesn't carry a lot of weight and doesn't project to carry a lot of weight. However, unlike Bonk, 
This player occasionally will torpedo and really drive through players uh, defensively. It's very surprising how how heavy he attempts to deliver hit, uh, his hits right. occasionally. You, you need that's it's not fundamental to his translation rate, but it's an incredibly right. useful thing to see as it, a backup. It reminded me of Ballard. Remember when Ballard played in the NHL and he come torpedoing across with that hip That's check, right? Yeah. right? Yeah, a he, smaller, he smaller, smaller defenseman, and then it would surprise you when he did it. And he did it in college too, so it wasn't anything new to anybody. It's just occasionally because it wasn't you didn't expect it to be his nature, but it was his nature, right? So yeah, you take Owens, that Owiger, same thing, right? right. Barons, these smaller defensemen, if they have that extra element, it's super useful for the translation rates long term. When you think about playoff hawking, when when the physicality is going to get go up a notch, they need to match it, right? And and Gulliev at least projects to do that and, to and send a message. Smaller. Send a message send that a message. all of a sudden Absolutely. there's a little missile coming along and he hits that's you around right. the hips or the, around that's or right. above the thighs. That's going to cause you problems. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you don't want as a smaller player, the last thing you want is to be physically taken advantage of. Right. And so yeah. that, that that's a good sign. Uh, offensively, there's a ton there. He projects to be the better, the best offensive player of any of the defensemen we're discussing here today. Uh, it's just all about the physical growth rate. He's for him, the developments in the gym. He's got to get in the gym. The other aspect is defensively, he's uh, relatively average. I know some people think he's pretty good defensively. I would disagree with that. So, right. well, but we'll see. We'll see if that improves in my next uh, my next several viewings. Let's talk about Theo Lindstein. I want your thoughts on the Swedish defenseman. Um, he's in Brynäs' system, has obviously played in J20. He's got some time this year with the Swedish Elite League. Uh, he's only six foot, about 175, 180 pounds. Thoughts on his overall game, you know, prior to Christmas and now what you're sort of hoping to see from him and round out his game after Christmas. Well, you meant, you mentioned the frame six feet, one seventy five, but again, the, on paper, it doesn't sound like much, but he's, he's got a good frame. He's broad, yeah. he's wide, he's thicker. Yeah. He's, he's got, uh, he's got density to him, I guess the way to put it. Um, Theo, Theo's been a, a, a well-known prospect for a number of years because he's advanced and mature defensively. Uh, his game stylistically, again, not, not uh, direct comparisons, but there's a mishmash there of Drew Ellison meets uh, Caden Korzak. Uh, right. Ellison, who was drafted out of Colorado, second round, Korzak, uh, 2019 pick of second round from Vegas. So when you look at what he is, you are looking at, we talked about insulators. Well, there's a reason we're talking about them. That's because that's what he is. He is a puck moving uh, insulator. That's what his game is. He is extremely vanilla. You know, sometimes I throw in the vanilla bean term there if they have a little more. Uh, I felt Hellison had a bit of that, uh, but he's, he's more in the camp of Korzak where very stationary at the line, doesn't see the game in advance offensively. Uh, when it comes to how he projects at the line, specifically in the offensive right. zone. However, that doesn't mean he can't generate points. The way that he's going to generate points is with his breakouts and exits because they're extremely clean and efficient, even at the SHL level. Right. So he's playing up in Brinus' system, top top uh, SHL there, and he has advanced advanced exiting routes. He knows and, how to find and the And forwards love options. that. Forwards Absolutely. love that. And they'll tell the coaches, I love when that guy – is passing the puck out of the zone. So then that gives the coaches confidence and he gets more minutes in these situations where, you know, that has that there's a tremendous advantage to that of being the best outlet passer within your defensive group. hundred percent. And he really is clean. He, he knows how to, he knows how his time and space 
and he knows not to force exits. That's a, if you look at Kirky, he forces a lot of stretch play making through the middle. That's right. not something Theo Lindstein does, right? And again, that's where we, when we talk about a raw base in terms of thinking relative to somebody who has a more mature thinking process, that that's the difference, right? Theo thinks the game uh, at a very mature level for his age. That said, there is a tremendous lack of creativity, and he does not project to be an offensive force by any stretch right. of the imagination. But there, there's there's so, value in that because. That those type of players tend to play better in a more structured system like the exactly. NHL. Tim Burney. Right? We talked about yeah. it with Rick Nash on this show with Tim yep. Burney, right? Yep. That's exactly right. Structured players thrive when there's already structure because they can be the first ignition switch in the chain going up the ice, yeah. right? That's what that's what Theo Lindstein is. That's how he's going to operate. That's what he'll be. Let's talk about uh, Cameron Allen um, and his play prior to Christmas with the Guelph Storm. And uh, you guys had him around 48th. Um, so obviously a fluid ranking, so, you know, don't get married to it. Just thoughts oh, on him. No, not, not at this stage, stage, especially. Um, and then what your thoughts on him as a player and then what you're hope, what you're hoping to see um, in his progression as he, you know, gets pushing towards the playoffs. Well, we've talked about this before. Cam is not in, in a great position here being on Guelph, right? A lot of opportunity is lost in terms of seeing the offensive generation because he's hemmed in so much in his own zone. Um, right. That's it. Well, there's some advantages I, to seeing that too, as well. Because, you're right. You get right? to see the defense a lot more often, right? We're talking well, linebacker, uh, and, Austrian, and mentally, defense, uh, and mentally, you want to see. Look, if somebody's getting yeah, exactly. their head caved in every game, do they exactly. keep coming back? And do they That's keep exactly coming right. back? Right. So yeah. that matters. Yeah, exactly. Linebacker Chechi was up, you know, six seven nothing. He's still bringing it, right? Same yeah. thing with Cam Allen. Is he bringing it? The answer is yes, yes. Cam Cam Allen is a competitive player, and he's going to have to be, right? So we talked about how there's like a more one dimensional uh, defenders here in, in terms of how they operate. I feel Cam Allen is the most well rounded in terms of understanding when to use his stick instincts and then uh, merging that with his physicality. That's right. really, however, as a scout. You know, this is one thing I totally agree with a lot of NHL staff about this is I really like defensemen to be 6'3", 200 pounds and have all uh, those Osprey wingspans to them. You know, it's yeah. very, very advantageous. Yeah. Right? And unfortunately, Cam doesn't have that, right? So that's that's the real – and it's not his fault. It's just the nature of the business, the nature of the game uh, when you project him to the NHL. So what he needs to do is become a more efficient puck mover than I've seen and then he's going to have to blend a little more offense than we've seen so that he can be that well-rounded player uh, that that overcomes his his physical limitations, I think would be the best way to put it. Yeah, it's really interesting when, you know, there's a misconception, it's sometimes misconception or a narrative built about how many defensemen or how many forwards or what the draft is going to look like really early on. And we really hundred percent. We have an inkling, but we really don't know, you know, and that's what it comes to defensemen. Like, you know, even in your late November list at hockeyprospect.com, you had, you know, of the 64 players listed, 17 were defensemen and, you know, only four of them were in the top 32 and the other 13 were in the, in the second round. But we all know that, you know, the sec second half of the year, you got to, you got to add both halves together, right? And you can't make, you know, sweeping conclusions. So that's why we're talking about these defensemen, because I think the defensemen within those first two rounds are really going to dictate the value of this overall draft more than those top four players up top, right? We can talk about the, yeah, the quality absolutely. of 
the, yeah, the quality the top up top is five, great. Six is fantastic. Right. The 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 problem in this draft, I've said it since day one, since I've, uh, I did my initial sweep, and again, I see a lot more than most people. I really do. I really do actually watch the amount I I, I watch. That's one of the reasons uh, behind the scenes. Some people are like, hey, thanks for at least just watching what you say you watch. Yeah. Uh, the, the defense side of that is it's very raw there's a whole lot more projection than you would typically feel comfortable with yeah. let's hope by the end of the year some of it's cleaned up right that's yep. the only thing to know for if it if it's not this draft's going to be very interesting in terms of order of where where players go defensively they will it's gonna be all over the map it's gonna be yeah. all over the map absolutely brad and i gonna take off for a quick moment we come back we'll continue to talk about prospects right after these messages Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. And we're happy to introduce a new segment. Uh, we're happy to bring on Jason Bukula, uh, former director of amateur scouting, uh, longtime scout in the NHL, uh, currently with Sportsnet, uh, to talk about a segment called the Sports uh, Scouts Perspective. And the topic this week is weighing the value of the World Junior Championship for NHL draft eligible players. Uh, Jason, thank you for, very much for coming on the show. We always appreciate it. Absolutely no problem, Shane. It was great to see you in uh, in Halifax. Nice to reconnect. Absolutely. Um, and it's it's appropriate, the timing, there's the World Juniors just finished. And, you know, amongst the discussions with the NHL teams or NHL scouts and then outside into the more of the public forum, I think there's a disconnect about trying to understand the wane of the value for draft eligible players. Cause most of them coming into this tournament, either 17 or 18, it's primarily a 19 year old tournament, but not always. Uh, but most like if you added up the average, that would be from your perspective of your time, you know, in NHL scouting staffs and running your own staff, you know, what are your thoughts about trying to weigh that value of whether a player has a good tournament in terms of his overall play minus production, because production doesn't always equate to having a good tournament or to having maybe, you know, uh, a below average tournament. And, you know, how, how do you weight that situation in your mind and then amongst when you have those discussions with your staff? Well, first thing you have to, uh, to do is put everything in perspective at a tournament like this in relation to the quality of the group that surrounds the prospect. So not all teams are uh, constructed equally, as, as we witnessed uh, even most recently, like with Team Austria. Um, you know, obviously they were up against it from the beginning. So, um, you know, other teams like Sweden and uh, even the U.S. for that matter, they provide more structure, Canada obviously as well. So there's three different layers, Shane. I'm going to start with Canada and how I would have approached it last week. So Adam Fantilli, highly regarded prospect, top you know, three pick on projection on most draft lists, but let's just say top five for sure, because I feel comfortable with that. Okay. Coming out of amateur meetings. So he has to play out of position. First of all, he plays the left side. He plays the right side. He's a natural centerman at Michigan. So right away he's playing out of position. He's gone up a, a level in terms of college hockey is great hockey, but the depth of the world juniors is different even than college hockey, right? The quality of the opponents. So not only are you playing the wing, you're playing out of, uh, out of position, obviously, when you're a center, different responsibilities. So let's carve it back a little bit. Let's see how he evolves from the beginning of the tournament to the end of the tournament, because it's going to speak to his hockey sense. 
and his read and react game. It's going to speak also to his compete and his uh, and his uh, just overall understanding of what his role is on the team. So when you look at Fantilli, the beginning of the tournament, he gets burnt back door by Czechia on a backdoor goal, um, loses his man in coverage in the defensive zone as a winger. By the end of the tournament, he's tracking back through the neutral zone, intercepting plays on the backtrack, turning plays back up ice for Canada getting heavily involved in the trenches and has way more better detail defensively. So all of that there paints a picture of a kid that evolved. And we actually, I didn't need him to score a lot, Shane, in that tournament after what I saw early. I needed for him to do all the other things very well. Um, hopefully that makes some sense. You know, I'm trying to, to build the kid out a little bit. So, um, you know, in that situation there, there, there's one way to look at it. Now, somebody who wasn't at the tournament would say, well, he only had whatever he had, four or five points, and they can't fight. Um, it doesn't matter to me. I mean, he wasn't uh, put in situations all the time. He played secondary power play, but as we know, Team Canada, that first unit was a juggernaut, and they, they ate up most of the time. So um, when we get into other people, though, like defensemen especially and goaltenders, um, like if you look at the Axel Sandin Pelica for Sweden, I think he's on the rise. He's a transitional defenseman, five foot eleven, I guess, if we stretch him out. Um, elite skater, uh, distributor on the offensive blue line more than a shooter. But you know what? At the beginning of the tournament, his uh, his defending down low in his zone was, I would say, acceptable, uh, average plus. By the end of it, I thought he ran out of gas a little. You know, physically, I thought that he was losing his contains and, uh, and getting beat to the the middle of the ice, and you know, he just wasn't as good. Um, but, again, let's put it in perspective. Played uh, right around 20 minutes a night, any from, anywhere from 18 to 22 minutes a night as a draft-eligible defenseman. Uh, heavy minutes for a guy, big responsibility. Did he run out of gas a little bit? Let's just say he did. Did you see enough quality out of his game uh, perspective-wise through the, the journey? Absolutely. So there's two examples that I'm trying to paint pictures of that uh, don't get too high, don't get too low, but look for the other small details in the game because that'll speak to their hockey IQ. Thanks for coming on, Jason. Uh, when you look at it from a perspective of waiting the tournament, uh, how much do you take into consideration ice time with respective players that play professionally overseas? For instance, John Jason Paterk was a player where I thought he had an excellent U20 in his draft year, but he was only averaging around seven to eight minutes with Munich. So I, I as a scout, waited that tournament uh, rather heavily for, for his draft season. Uh, do, you, do you agree with that approach? How do you look at it when it comes to players who are getting more limited ice time at pro leagues over and overseas? He's a great example, Brad, because I remember coming out of that tournament in Ostrava, the World Juniors that year, and then uh, myself and Yari Kekalainen, who was our director of European scouting in Florida at the time, we purposely went to track him in the uh, in the DEL um, come playoff time. Um, I remember in Munich one day at the Olympic, actually when they were playing at Red Bull, um, at the old Olympic fairgrounds there, there or the Olympic park that they call it there. And it was our, myself, Montreal, and I think one other team that was there, but we were heavily tracking them for the reasons you just suggested. Um, we would watch him uh, if we could in a game day skate, certainly in warm up, and then see if he got more minutes at, uh, at the men's league level. Um, so um, it's part of the process, I guess, is the short answer. You know, again, perspective is going to be everything, right? Um, and don't forget, in a small window, like a tournament like this, some of these players, the coaches, they won't admit it, but we've all been around long enough. Um, you know, there's going to be some nepotism in there too, right? Like sometimes they uh, they know, or, you know, they know a player 
better than they know the other player and it's a 10-day event or 12-day event, then they're going to roll out the guy that they feel more comfortable with, even if the other guy's a really good player. Yeah, no, and that's the fascinating part is what we're trying to uncover is context, especially from, you know, from my perspective is like who are they playing with? What's their line mates? What was their situation in their junior pro team? And then they're coming over to this tournament. How, how much is, does that change? How much does the content change, you know, from that situation? Then that uh, to me sometimes dictates or almost always dictates how much I'm going to weight that situation. And then what's the usage deployment for the coaching staff in his normal, uh, team and then what is it here in this tournament and in, in, in that perspective and that helps me sort of gauge that a little bit more because it was something I learned from Rick Dudley is I might not be sure about the player but I'm damn sure about the coach right because <laughs> sometimes like and we're valuable just as much sometimes we're the problem as evaluators is sometimes the coach like gets in the way of not putting the player in that in that position to be successful, and then he gets unfairly tarred and feathered for it. Yeah, I, I think you're you're definitely you're talking to the right guy about that. And the the most prominent example of that outside the world junior Shane has always been for me the uh, U.S. national team development program when it comes to exactly what you just described. There's only one puck, and uh, generally speaking, over the last several years, there's been some high end talent there. And some of that high-end talent um, gets kind of buried. They're like an underbelly on that team, if you know what I mean. They're secondary. Right. They're, they're a secondary. They're a byproduct of the top of the lineup. Like, you know, like a Red Savage, for example. I really like Red Savage, you right. know. And I thought he had an excellent tournament. Yeah, exactly. And if you take Red Savage um, and you plop him in the USHL in Green Bay, let's just say I'm just spitballing here, um, instead of at the U.S. National Team Development Program at that time, maybe – Maybe he evolves more offensively. You, you know what I mean? Like there's only right. there's only one one power play unit or one and a half power play units um, come the World Championships. It seems with that group, and um, you, you're right onto it, man. Like it could be the coach, but it's also also could just be the situation that um, um, that's our job as scouts to identify. You know what? That kid's capable of more. Like I I see him when he gets to college and beyond, being able to do this, this, and this. Um, but we have to watch closely for that stuff. Uh, last mm -hmm. question before we have to let you go is how much do you watch how they mentally, emotionally react to duress when things really go badly? Um, body language, how they react in their next two and three and four shifts. How much does that weigh into your assessments? Oh, it, it really does. A great deal. A great deal. So it speaks that there's no easy days in the National Hockey League. There's no easy shifts in the National Hockey League. Um, so on your worst day, this is something that I go by. You can steal it if you want, or you can call me crazy, but I love to go into a rink and watch a player play and find out afterwards that he, uh, had to write an exam that day. His girlfriend broke up with him and he's suffering from the flu yet. He performed at a very high level. So on the worst possible day, personally and emotionally, he still performed at a high level. So why don't we peel it back and say Trey Augustine at the world juniors? Like, right. is anybody going to say that Trey Augustine had a poor tournament because in the pawn hockey game that was the Swedish uh, game and the bronze medal that, you know, it, it was what it was? Absolutely not. You know, I thought Trey Augustine first premiered. He looked like he might lose the net. He won the net. He was a big part of the U.S.'s success. And um, I got a lot of time for the way that he carried himself emotionally. Adam Fantilli is probably the biggest example, though, and I, I don't want to keep circling back to him. But if you recall, five-minute majors, he's serving them. 
too many men on the ice. He's serving them. He's playing in a depth role on the wing. You know, he had all these reasons to slouch a bit, and he never did. So, hey, for anybody that's listening to your program who's a, a potential player, uh, the way you carry yourself and the way you react is really important to guys like us. We're watching all the time. Jason, I want to thank you very much for coming on our show. We look forward to speaking next week, and safe travels out there. Thanks, Shane. Thanks, Brad. That's Jason Bukla from Sportsnet. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Prospect News and Analysis. This is Hockey Prospect Radio with Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now speaking uh, with Pat Malloy in our regular player development segment. The topic this week is building an NHL caliber candidate because we're going to talk about one of Pat's clients in Mason McTavish, who you've been working with for quite some time. And obviously, Pat, you know, Mason's, you know, research, you know, surge in terms of production has really raised a lot of eyebrows around the NHL. And certainly, of course, it puts him in the Calder uh, candidacy to win the trophy this year. And I think it's going to be right down to the stretch to see who uh, is going to get not only get the most points, but who's going to be that candidate that win the, the Calder. Talk about that process of taking a young man like Mason as his skills and development coach and skating coach and building him up to the point where he's become an NHL Calder trophy candidate. Yeah. I mean, with Mace, it's obviously been, been a long journey. And so, uh, you know, one of the benefits I think we have to work from is that, you know, we've been able to do a lot of things over the years to build out a skill set to be able to draw upon. And so, you know, a, a lot of the process starts with sort of having that, um, that that background information with him in terms of a skills inventory. What skills do we possess that we can use in tactical settings at the National Hockey League level? Um, what things were transferable from junior that we've got to make sure we implement in terms of strengths that we leverage at the NHL level? You know, what things might have worked at lower levels that obviously you know, we want to try to cut bait with and, and, and use things that are going to give us the most, you know, the maximum effect in terms of our play and ability to impact our team success. So, you know, from that perspective, you know, the journey this particular year is, you know, as a first, you know, a first year full-time player, you know, we kind of get through that first phase where, all right, we recognize number one, we belong number two. All right. We can excel at this level. And, and then it starts to turn into, all right, you know, based on what we've seen going through, looking at the background info of, you know, all right, let's do five game, 10 game aspects and, and take a, a peek at, all right, where are our chances coming from? Where are we succeeding? What areas, you know, do we want to try to make some change uh, in order to drive the performance needle? And so, you know, having that background information, recognizing, all right, are we playing to our strengths in a scenario here or are we allowing the game to play us? So, a lot of the processes started really with recognizing, all right, you know, do I possess more time and space than I realize? Are there things within my skill set where I'm able to create time and space or advantage in a scenario? And that's really one of the things recently we've started to see was, you know, in our most recent breakdown together, it was it was recognizing, all right, scoring chances or shots on goal, were we doing the things that maximize our ability to 
perform. And, and, and that really, you know, that sort of flow, that give and take between athlete um, and someone that's, you know, you know, what we won't do is talk about system, obviously that's team proprietary and we don't touch on any of that, but how can we help him as a player live within that structure that his team's looking for, but maximize his personal development and ensuring he's able to execute. Touching on his, on his offensive structure, is it more difficult to find a balance when you have a player who has both a ton of hard skill and soft skill and recognizing when and where he's supposed to use them? To a degree, although the one thing that's special about Mason, he's very intuitive um, and, and he's really in, in tune with the ebbs and flows of different ways, soft offense versus harder offense, hard skill versus some of the soft skill. And so, you know, you, you take a look at, you know, obviously he's being used on, on the power play and he's a one-time threat on one side. So, you know, from the perspective of shooting skills, he's, he's able to get around on one-timers and, and generate, you know, a forceful shot at the net. But the best league in the world, what you can see is, teams are starting to close things off. Teams are starting to do things that take away his ability to just grip and rip. So it, it starts to become a little bit more surgeon-like in that, can I create the seam? Can I create the lane? And so little things that we would look at, often you'd see, you know, especially recently, he's forced off to tougher angles. Well, you look to a technical skill at that point, and you see maybe there's an adjustment on his backswing, for instance, is something that we'll talk about. And that, you know, at distance, backswing might be a little bit more. But when you get into sharp angle and a little closer to the net, a small adjustment to backswing allows you to get around quicker, you know, generating the quality of opportunity that we're looking for. So he's very, very intuitive and knows his game, but he's also always seeking advantage, which, you know, from a coaching perspective is just a dream because, it's as much give and take as it is anything else and that he's very uh, invested in the process of finding every advantage possible. Pat, talk a little bit about his skating and how, and the areas of how he's had to adjust because I think coming out of his draft year, that was the knock on him. He wasn't fast, but you know, we, in our discussions, we, you know, we clearly, you know, pointed out that the fastest skater isn't the most effective skater and you have to be able to skate the game. Um, are you guys, do you both have that discussion of like, okay, when and where to use certain aspects of his skating to take that advantage, to take an advantage, knowing that he's a bigger, stronger body as well in certain circumstances? hundred percent. I mean, a lot of, you know, being a fast skater is great, but I think we all know of, of fast skaters in hockey that don't accomplish a lot. And, and so, you know, application becomes a thing, leveraging strengths versus you know areas of development so for him you know ending races before they become races by establishing body position that's something that we'll talk a lot about so looking at at video of finding areas where can I get to a spot that allows me advantage and, and takes away the ability to have to win a race because I end it before it's begun um, so that's something that we'll we'll take a lot of a time to look at and make sure we're recognizing from a tactical perspective, those sorts of opportunities to, you know, use my skating proactively versus reactively, if that makes sense. You mentioned obtaining and maintaining inside positioning. What about uh, his progress in coming off the wall? What, what area have you seen in terms of his development from that perspective? Well, again, you know, we talk a lot about leveraging things that you have in terms of advantage. And so as a, a strong player, you know, very committed to fitness, 
Um, one of the things we can do from a hard skill perspective is recognizing, you know, establishing body position and creating favorable attack angles is something that we'll talk a lot about um, so that he's able to extend possession. Because obviously with a player, you know, when, when they're valuable and they're good with the puck on their stick, we want to maximize the time that they have to be able to to make a player allow, you know, a lead level hockey sense to take over. Um, but sometimes that, cre- you know, there's time creation involved with that. And so wall play is certainly something that at the National Hockey League level, in my experience, you know, going through, you know, working with two hockey clubs in, in the league and, and countless prospects, it's one of the things that maybe is the most underrated um, or, or less flashy skill that you work on, but, you know, being able to maintain possession long enough to make a favorable next play is something that's, you know, it's a difference maker between playing hundreds of games and some games, if that makes sense. But certainly it was something that I learned from Craig Ramsey, um, you know, particularly, I thought, you know, he was the one coach that I was pointed to by other people to say, if you want to really help to understand wall play effectively, it, you know, watch Craig. So, in, in the evolution of Mason McTavish, how much of wall play is going to be a factor in his success of like, continue, keeping, maintaining puck position, but then creating time and space, not just for himself, but maybe even more importantly for his linemates? 100%, because, you know, at the end of the day, with a player that's as physically strong as he is, obviously, but then is competitively driven, uh, wants to be a difference maker, wants the puck on his stick, you know, and, and if I'm a coach, I, you know, I want players like that with, with pucks on their stick because typically good things happen if the play comes through them in some capacity. And so that's, a, you know, you're always looking for advantage in terms of can I create an angle that forces a defender into a spot where I can um, use my strengths against them uh, or I can dictate the terms of, of the outcome based on the things that I'd set up and triggers that I'd created and know to recognize um, based on my ability to create that play. So it's something we work a lot on specifically in the off season. I mean, from, from an in-season perspective, you know, it's, it's that evolution of recognizing, number one, I can play at this level. Number two, I can succeed at this level. And number three, now, how do we find the ways to dictate at this level? And so those are some of the things from an evolutionary standpoint that we're always looking to expedite that development curve and make sure that, you know, we possess tactical and, and skill strengths let's make sure they're they're on display each and every night when we have opportunity and recognizing those times via video and, and constant feedback from that perspective a minute left in in this hour uh pat just quick question you know moving forward over the next 41 games for for mason it's just is it about just continuing maintaining habits it's just almost like you kind of do a refresher with each other just to make sure that you're both on the same page and that his habits are maintained regardless of how much adversity he's facing. For sure. I mean, there's lots to change, especially in the last 40 games in terms of, you know, all kinds of things outside of his control. And so for, for a young player, it's about maintaining focus on the things that he can control, the response to events that he doesn't necessarily create. But most importantly is now that he's built a comfort level at the level, it's recognizing and learning to see. So, you know, when we'll do a five-game review, it's recognizing where he has time and space, where he's got to create a little bit more of it, and and learn to intuitively find those options and those benefits within a play um, that he can expedite. And then the more he becomes comfortable with that, the more he's able to do that. Well, Pat, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show again. We always appreciate it and look forward to speaking to you next week. 
Awesome, guys. Thanks so much. That's Pat Malloy, our player development expert. We're going to take a short break and on to hour two right after this. Welcome to Hockey Prospect Radio, your voice for prospect news and analysis on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Now, here's your hosts, Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back empowered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're now into the second hour. We're going to chat about some Detroit Red Wings prospects with Dan Cleary, Director of Player Development for the Wings. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. We always we appreciate it. Yep. Thank you for having me. Well, let's talk about some prospects right off the hop. I'm thought I'm really curious to get your thoughts on Shai Buim because I thought he was a player that deserved an opportunity to play at the World Juniors for, for USA. I always think they could have used a bigger body. Yes, he's more offensive oriented in, you know, his playing style, but thoughts on him in his second year in the University of Denver. It's a tough conference to play in. I think it's actually the most appropriate conference for him to play in to help him sort of round out his game. Thoughts on how he's played so far this year for you? Yeah, Shy. I got to see Shy. I probably saw, I've been in Denver twice, um, some few weekends. You know, I was very surprised he didn't make that World Junior team. Um, I think he might have been as well. But like I said to him, you know, I said, you know, when, you know, you know, some adversity, uh, you know, I think he went in thinking he could make it and he didn't. Uh, now hindsight is obviously 2020. Look back at the program team. You know, I thought that they could use the bigger body as well. Um, but anyways, uh, that being said, I thought Shai's played well this year. You know, being a defending champs, he's came in, um, you know, started off, got some power play time, um, then kind of regressed a little bit, but he's, he's back on it. And last time I saw him play right before Christmas, Played very well. You know, he's the one thing with shy that, you know, we're constantly on shy about is the skating, the skating footwork gap, pivoting, neutral zone gapping, you know, going back for pucks. Cause when he gets the puck, he makes good plays. He's a smart player. He makes good little small plays as a big D man. He's uh, he got good instincts. Um, he's got a good handle on the puck for sure. Yeah, you mentioned the pivoting. We discussed at length with, uh, with Sean Horkoff there about the fact that he was he was a defender who rarely wanted to even backward skate in his initial draft season. He would purposely pivot and then keep his back onto the play in transition uh, because he was that worried about how, how he would hold with his balancing. So uh, my, my question for you is uh, that you, you, you touched on briefly here is, do, do you feel that he's improving with his off-the-puck gaps, his spatial recognition, and so he can stay, stay above the puck and not get lost there? And Do you feel that that is a factor, a limiting factor, that led to one of the reasons that he didn't make the U-20 score? It's a great question. Um, I, I do think it's improved. Um, now, there's a lot of work to do. He, he, he knows that. Um, was that a contributing factor? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good, you know, because, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you got to be able to defend. You got to be able to have a hold a good gap and defend. I mean, it doesn't matter who you are or, or what you're doing. Every, everybody needs to be able to defend. And I think to defend, you need to be able to have good footwork, good pivoting ability, especially in that neutral zone. You know, as you move along in pro levels, as you get, you know, you go from the NCHC and you move along, whether it's American League or the NHL level, the speed just gets quicker and quicker, you know, and, and these players, they, they know angles, they know what, through the neutral zone, where to go and where to be. And as a defenseman, a good defenseman, you know, the, you can, you can angle and you can <laughs> dictate at times, you know, where, where these players can end up. And so that's something we're really working on with shy and, you know, it's only a second year. He's, he's, he's a young player, you know, he's got, he's got time, but 
he's got to put the work in. And I know that we know we have the skating coaches. Uh, we've had him gone out to Denver um, in the off season and work with them. Um, so at the end of the day, you know, it's, it just takes time. It takes time. You know, you guys have to require a little bit of extra patience in his development. Cause when you have those players who have transferred from forward to D like, you no know, forwards obviously are not used to having the play in front of them and defensemen, even if you played at a younger age, you're so used to that. It's, it's really autotelic, very instinctual. Um, do you find that that's part of his process too, is just making, making those habits so constant that he no longer has to think about it anymore. Cause that's what I find in his game. It's almost like I'm watching him as a really bad defenseman. I was is like, Ooh, he's thinking about, you can sort of almost see it. He's thinking about what he needs to do instead of it just automatically happening. Yeah, that's a good observation. You know, uh, when you're thinking on the ice, I, I think you go slower. You play slower. You know, you want to be – hockey is such a, an instinct. It's, you know, you just play off your instincts, feel. It happens at a hundred thousandths of a second, split of a second. You know, these reactions and timing and reads and feel. And, you know, we got to eliminate the thinking. You know, I, I've always, you know, you want to go out and, and use your ability and you put the work in, but you got to, you know, the, the smarter players exceed better than not as smart and the faster players can move around better than the slower players. So for shy, trying to get that thinking out of his game is a really important thing. And, and when that happens, you know, that's, again, you got, it just takes time. I certainly hope he's not thinking, you know, uh, how to play forward out there when, when, you know, he's got someone breathing down his neck through the neutral zone, but he's done well. And I know that, um, you know, David's happy with him in Denver. He's happy with him. It's his second year. Um, he's done well. Um, headed back out there this weekend to see him play. Um, and hopefully, you know, they, they play in Miami. So they're actually playing red. Let's talk about red Savage. Now I gave him a tremendous amount of praise at during the world juniors and after the world juniors, because I thought he was one of the most complete players for team USA on both sides of the puck. And the way he plays it's such a pro style game in terms of, cause he, he tends to be out where he needs to be. Uh, he makes smart, quick passes. His, and I, the one thing that really stood out to me, Dan, that I really appreciated was his puck support in all three zones. Like whenever the, he needed an outlet or he needed to support his teammates, I thought that really jumped out to me. He it reminded me in, in many cases of a former teammate of yours and, and Kurt Mulpey. I thought Kurt was like very reliable in that respect in his game. And um, I just find, you know, Red may end up being a better pro than he is a college player because he gets into a more structured environment where he knows everybody else is where they're supposed to be too. I would have to uh, agree with you. I thought Red had a really strong tournament. Um, I was really proud of the way he played. He should, he was, he should be proud of the way he played. Spoke to him actually um, on Monday. Um, you know, just watch him play, you know, when you say, you know, responsible, that's what he is. He's not a cheater. You know, he's a really, he's a 200 foot player and you, you can see, um, I watched the game against Finland. I'm, I think it might've been on new year's, uh, new year's Eve in Moncton. He played a tremendous game. You know, I know he didn't get on the scoreboard, you know, I, you know, but the next game against Germany, he had a couple, but I thought he plucked, he played very well. You know, is for me, his skating is the one thing that's really, really improved. He's always been really solid, no cheat, underneath the play, you know, good support, knows where to be. Um, so he's got that brain, that hockey brain, and that's going to serve him well, you know. Um, you know, this is his second year in Miami. Um, and I think, you know, his path, his development path has really gone 
on a nice, uh, you know, upward climb. He's, you know, really happy with Red. You mentioned the 200-foot game. Where in his development are you most impressed with him offensively? Do you feel that there's a specific offensive skill set that he's he's shown better than you expected coming out of his initial draft year? Mm, another good question. I, for me, I think his skating is the most improved. And I think that, you know, you could see, you know, even at the World Juniors, you know, he, you know, he he, he kind of gets slotted in that in that, okay, you're going to be my PK, my third line checking center, a guy I can count on, you know. Um, and I think, but if you surround him with some better players, he's got offensive tools. He's got a good feel, you know, his shot is, his shot has improved uh, like anybody, your shot can always get better, but he's got good spatial awareness. You know, he's just, he's just smart. He's just a smart player. And I think, um, and I, and I kind of agree, you know, what you're saying in terms of he, he's going to be a better pro than a college player. And I would agree with that. Well, I find what he does when he's playing with, more offensive style players is he doesn't waste time with them. Like he uses a give and go. His shorts are quick and precise. And then he jumps to, to an area. There's no dangling with the puck. There's no trying to make a cute play. There's none of that. And that's where like, and when, as his skating's improved, I think what he does really well, he's not the fastest skater, but he skates the game. Well, like he understands how to change his speeds so he can find time and space or to cut off when he's defensively. I think he understands where the play is going to, and he uses his skating and he changes it to adapt, to be more effective and take away lanes and take away, you know, opportunities that way. That's what I like about his game specifically. And I thought I saw a lot of that at the world juniors. Yeah. I love it. I love his, I love his ability to uh, short play pucks, move it, give and goes. That is the pro game. You know, when I watch, you know, I deal with a lot of our young players, watch a lot of young players. You know, I always, uh, it drives me crazy when, you know, they do so many things right. They come down on a one-on-two and they think, you know, try to do this little dangle between the legs and it's sniffed out and the puck's going the other way. I go, guys, I don't understand. Why would you even bother? It's a turnover. You know, it's a turnover. Get it. Playing the given goal game, especially through the neutral zone and in, in the offensive zone will serve you well. And, you know, the quicker they get that in their brains and drill it in, it takes time. A lot of these habits are developed now at this, at a young age. Now you see all these young players coming up thinking they're going to do, you know, a lot of di- different tricks with the puck, very individual, individualistic. And I, that's, that's not a pro game. Um, and when, when finally, when it gets through their head after multiple videos and multiple, you know, I'm like, guys, all you got to do is if you just move and cut, move and cut support, get off the puck speed, you know, you will you will have a much better offensive game, much more time in the offensive zone and way less time on a back check. So Red is one of those guys, to be honest, I've never really had to talk to him about that. He's always been like that. Ever, ever since I've known Red, he's always been a short give and go guy. He hasn't been the guy that tries to, you know, between the legs on D, try to beat people one on one. He he beats people by moving pucks into space and using his strength and his smarts and to me, that is a very, uh, a very good uh, skill to have. When I'm, when I watch him, that's a player that coaches will trust. Yeah. When, when things are in a tough situation, last two minutes or, a, you know, big penalty kill, or you got a matchup against a top line, he can be trusted. Like there's, yeah. you're not going to, he's not going to make the glaring errors. Everybody, all players make mistakes. It's about time and space and it happens at a rapid rate. But to me, when I watch him play, it's, that's the one thing that jumps out to me is he understands time and space and he knows that's his most valuable asset. So um, like I know the late draft picks generally don't make the NHL, but I, I put my money on red 
if there was a betting line, I'm putting my money on Red Savage to make uh, Detroit Red Wings one day. We're going to take a short break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll continue to talk about the Red Wings prospects right after these messages. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back and powered by Instat Hockey, offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. We're continuing to talk about the Red Wings prospects with Dan Cleary, their director of player development. Dan, I want to get your thoughts on William Wallander. I'm always curious about the lanky defensemen coming out of Europe that get to move up between the J20, then El Svenskin, then they get some time in like the Swiss Elite League and they sort of bounce around a little bit. Thoughts on his continued development because uh, he's a guy I'm looking forward to see how he adapts to the American League. Because that's always, to me, that that jump. What happens when they get through that first 20 and 40 games in the American League? William Wallander, um, he should be very proud of himself. He He's really dug in. Uh, Nick Cromwell has done an incredible job helping William Wallander. The the, the guys at, at Rogla, um you know, uh, the brothers, Chris and Cam, have done an intre- incredible job. You know, uh, two years ago, you know, he was, you know, playing a modo and kind of didn't really have a spot, you know, really wasn't going well. And then all of a sudden he's in Rogan. They did a tremendous job in developing him, and he just matured. He just really – so, you know, we used to go and talk to William. You know, he used to have his hair in his face, and I could, I'd be like, William, I can really see you. You know, really despondent, really like kind of like – you know, not not confident. You know, his shoulders were forward. Now they're back. Harris slicked back. He's leading. The, you know, leads their team in ice time. I think he, he's like he might be the top three, four scorers on their team. Plays a lot of minutes. He's really, really, really developed well. Like big time. Dan, the the toolkit was always stood out. It was always there, but he was raw in his initial draft season. I found that uh, one of the biggest obstacles I had in, in terms of uh, his projection of the NHL was that he's very inconsistent with his retrieval rates despite his skating base. Uh, sometimes under pressure, he would he would uh, force plays when he didn't need to. And other times, it would be the opposite. He would, he would hold on to the puck when he could. Uh, so do you feel that he, with his toolkit, with his range, with his frame, is he starting to use that frame so that he can maintain possession when he needs to so that his retrievals can be a bit more clean and his exits are more clean? And is that what part of the maturing process of the player? Yeah, I, I think you know he's he's big, uh, he's he can move. He's got really uh, good brain processing brain. Again, it comes down to confidence. Everything is confidence, you know. And now he goes back for pucks, you know. Even you know I was just there in November. Um, yeah, you know, there's still things you go. But he, I, I'm like, he goes back for pucks. You know, maybe it's a rim when he doesn't have to. You know, rim. Maybe it's you know absorb pressure. A little Brian Rafalski popping into the middle. You know, but he's really come a long ways and. What I like most about William is, A, he's big, and he can move. He'll get it in the way. He's got good length. Um, and those type of D-men, you know, I believe are are great to have. Well, certainly if you look at the past Stanley Cup winners, St. Louis, Tampa oh. Bay, they got these mastodon, massive gargantuan defensemen that are mobile. 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", they all can move, and they just get arms and legs and bodies and sticks in the way. And if that's what frustrates those skilled players is just like that you take away their time and space. You don't even have to punish them. Just take away their time and space over and over again, repeatedly till they lose their minds um, is, you know, is how much of helpful is it been to your young defenseman having a guy like Nick Cronwall in there who, when he was drafted, I remember talking to Jim Neal, he was 5'11", 
maybe 165 pounds, but turned into like uh, had an excellent pro career and having somebody there who can help guide them through those processes when, Hey, it's just, you just got to keep moving forward. Like every little increment matters. These guys are very lucky to have a guy like Croner um, and Croner is very passionate. He's an incredible Red Wing, one of the best defensemen to ever put on a Red Wing jersey. Um, incredible person, unbelievable work ethic. He's unbelievable, Un- uh, like unbelievable. And he spends a lot of time. He's, he's on video. His he, he knows when he talks the nuance of playing defense, it's not like, you know, you know, he's, he knows the little things are so important and he, and he's such a good teacher. He's on the ice with these kids, but you did it with Simon. You did it with Albert. He's doing it with William. Uh, you know, he's just, you know, he's just very smart and he's passionate and these guys have a lot of respect for him. And they're, I tell him every phone call we have, I go, guys, you know, lucky you are to have Croner there, you know, the, the heavier, not beck and call because, you know, I'm not going to treat him like that, but he's available 24 seven for these guys. He does a tremendous job. And I'm very lucky to have him help me. So we're very lucky as a Red Wing organization. He's awesome. He's awesome. I'd like to ask you about Theodore Niederbach. I want to get your thoughts on him as well. And just in terms of, you know, you look at his overall game. I like the fact that you guys in the, in these sort of second, third rounds, you're taking European players that have a longer runway for their development. And that's the difference. And that's an unfortunate thing that happens with the CHL players have a shorter runway, but the Europeans have a longer runway. You can sort of take advantage of the extra year or two years in their development thoughts on his overall play and development from your perspective of seeing him the last year. I think he's um, taking a step back to be honest. And, and he, you know, and I, you know, and it started for me this summer in Edmonton. Uh, I didn't think he played well at the world juniors. Um, you know, we did showed him his game. You know, what did you think? You know, just didn't look, I'm like, Theo, let's get going here. Let's get going. And, the effort and the play in, in August at Edmonton, that transferred right into Rogla. You know, he's looking at a fresh start on a new team. You know, Rogla's really looking for a right shot centerman. That was, you know, they really targeted him. And I thought it'd be a great fit. Um, and it just didn't, you know, and I, and I, he just wasn't playing with the same passion that, that I know he has in him. And so then, you know, um, got to move into Modo, which I think has been a good fit for him. You know, Modo's the top team, Nels Fenskin. Uh, it was good that, you know, he, he's playing there now and doing, I'm doing well. Uh, I'll see him in February when I go over for U20 and angle home, I'm going to go see him after. Uh, but I think that was a really important thing was for him to leave Rogla, go to Modo, get more ice time, play, get more confident. And because I do believe in Theo, he's a smart player, you know, but I got to see him a little bit more burn. I need to see a little more passion. Well, it's interesting, Dan. I remember, I felt like, out of any player after his draft year, plus one. I thought he was one of the best in terms of his development because he was all all firing on all cylinders. He dominated J20, gets into Forlunda, and then, you know, he's up with Soderblom. I thought they were developing there well. And then, you know, he had a decent uh, second year there. And then you know, Rogo is, as you, as you know, phenomenal program. So it's, it's one of those situations where on paper, it sounds like it's going to work. Uh, my question for you is, like, when a player has a dip like this mentally, uh, what do you look for in on-ice indicators to see that he's getting over it? Oh, basically every area of the ice, you know, face-offs. I'm like, I'm watching him, you're a centerman. Like, and I'm watching him take face-offs, and it's just a, there's no compete. 
Like, I get it. You're not going to win 100% of your face-offs, but the ones that you lose, just fight for it. Fight. Dig in. And I just, and it wasn't there. And I was like, I, you know, I was like, okay. Uh, you know, and then I would talk to Chris or Cam. And, you know, they were, like, saying the same things. Or Corner would be over skating. Now, in saying that, you know, you know, Theo is, 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 a, is, is a really nice kid. I just think, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was a change of scenery. Um, I don't know. I, I really thought he would flourish in, in Rogla and take that role on. He just didn't. Now. He certainly played much better in Modo. He feels more confident. He's got his game. He's on the power play. He's making plays, you know, he's, you know, but, you know, like I told Theo, you know, you know, I remember I went, I was in Rogue, I was out of the game, you know, me, it was me, Zetterberg, Cronwall. We're going in to see Casper, Wallander, you know, Niederbach, you know, and I'm going Z, you know, let's go down. I really would like you to talk to, to Theo and, you know, I'm like Theo, you know, so Z would talk to him. And, but at the end of the day, like we said to Theo, you're the one on the ice. We can help you and, and tell you things and, and let you know some tricks or what we think you got to do. But you got to put you got to do the things out there. You got to do the effort and you got to have the burn and the passion for it. And, you know, I, I still believe in Theo and, and, I, and I think he's done a good job since he's left Robles. So that's been a real positive. So I'm looking forward to going back and seeing him play, to be honest. Was that was that a good learning experience for you as director of player development? when players go through that to help you start to recognize, Oh, there's a bunch of different things that, you know, each player is an individual. And then what out of my toolbox do I need to pull out to help him get through the, this dip? Cause all prospects are going to go through it. All of them, except for like the rare occasion, they all go through those kind of like situations. They certainly do. And this is my sixth year doing this. Um, and, you know, there's nothing, you know, I went into it thinking there's nothing one of these kids are going to tell me or show me or try to trick me that I either haven't seen or done or been through. Um, so, but, you know, when players do struggle, a lot of it is, just, you know, strictly maybe it's, you know, mentally, you know, how are they doing off the ice? Uh, uh, and Theo, you know, we would always talk to him and, you know, he's, he's, he's pretty guarded and he's quiet, you know, like most Swedes, they're very reserved, very quiet, very, you know, um, but they're, they have that inner compete, you know, and I've, and I play with a lot of Swedes that these guys are very competitive and they just don't, they're not boastful about it. That's all. They just don't like yell, like, and scream when they do win inside they are, but they don't show it. So I wanted, you know, Theo to come more out of his shell. Um, but I think, you know, after talking to him, you know, it's a great learning experience because I just think he was just struggling with the adaption, uh, with the, you know, whether it's new city, leaving for London. Like how they do it in Europe is really unique for me, you know, and it's not fair to the player, you know, like they knew it was reported that Theo was leaving for Alunda. Like they're just maybe starting the playoffs. It was in the news, you know, just, can you imagine being like, yeah. you're in the playoffs in April and a report comes out. Oh, you know, Cleary's leaving to go to, I don't know, Montreal in next year. What? You know, yeah. so that, I never oh. understood that. But anyways, but. No, that's fair. And that it, um, you know, we have to remember that these are still kids. They may be 20 yeah. years old, but they're still kids and they don't have the same level of reasoning or mental, mental or emotional control that adults do over the age of five. It's just scientifically backed. It is what it is. And then, you know, you guys are sort of left to pick up the pieces sometimes when different systems, this, they are what they are. Uh, from that respect. Dan, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate the insight of your prospects and safe travels out there. Thank you, guys. Uh, good to speak with both of you.
That's Dan Cleary, Director of Player Development for the Detroit Red Wings. We'll be back right after these messages. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We are back and powered by PowerPlayer, hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis in our regular segment, It's All Mental. He's a sports psychologist and mental coach. We are going through his book, Hockey Grit, Grind, and Mind, and we are just finishing up Chapter 6, which is Perseverance. The subtopic for this segment is become a perf- – oh, no, actually, no, it's managing negative emotions. Um, now, Dr. Willis, this is probably – and this is my estimation, the most challenging aspect of a human being's behavior is managing negative emotions and not letting that becoming the first thing that comes out. I think if in school in general, whether it be elementary school or high school, I think there should be a class that teaches kids how to, ha- how to do that because will that ever save you a lot of grief in your life if you know how to do it properly? Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny because, but the, the problem is that we were, so we evolved to sort of slant towards the negative, to slant towards the danger, right? That's, that's what kept us alive is that we had just a, a little bit more acknowledgement of what could go wrong, what could be bad, um, what could, you know, eat us. Um, and so that's, we're fighting evolution with that. And so we, I think the best thing is just to recognize that, you know, I, I have to make a concerted effort to a recognize that I lean towards maybe being more negative than positive. But number two, I think we have to recognize what that means. What does that do to performance? What does that do to mindset? What does that do to, you know, behavior and feelings and being able to get along with others and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I go all the way back to the beginning. I think it's so important to be able to recognize how these things are affecting our ability to be our best. Um, that's, that's number one, but then having strategies to, you know, with how to deal with it. And I think negative emotions, the thing we have to understand about that is recognizing the, the, well, the negative impact that negative emotions have. And um, that really comes down to the idea that we've got a certain amount of energy that we bring to pretty much anything that we do, whether it's physical or mental energy. And when we are dealing in the negative, we are leaking that energy. It's like a bucket with a hole in it, walking around, you know, it's leaking, it's leaking the water, it's leaking the energy. And that's what's so important to recognize is that we work so hard to train, to be fit, to to have endurance, you know, to have psychological clarity and all that kind of stuff. But if we, if we're, you know, willing to sort of flirt with the negative side of things, uh, then we are risking running out of energy, mental energy, physical energy. And and let's face it, that is not going to help you perform. Can you break down the, the different types of negative emotional states that that can sabotage you when you're trying to perform? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I bet you just about anybody, if you said, Hey, list, you know, list all the negative, uh, emotions that, that people deal with, you know, they they can come up with it really, really quick, but I think those ones in hockey, the ones that really, really affect players. And I, and I know you see it every single time you're out scouting people, you see it right. And these guys, they, they think they can hide it, but the, the fact is they can't. And it's things like anger, right? Frustration, anxiety, fear, uh, being discouraged. Uh, those are the things that 
really just submarine performance. They really is, is as hard as you work, as much as you want it. It doesn't matter if you're anxious, if you're frustrated, if you're pissed off, right? Um, you know, and, and some people will say, well, no, I play better when I'm mad. If I, if I have an edge, I, I, I'm just, I'm a better player. And, and I'm not saying that's not true. That, that could very well be true. But I think over the long haul, you know, using anger as a motivator is sort of a double-edged sword because we know for a fact that anger is a negative emotion. Negative emotions drain energy. And so if we use it ongoing, then we're sort of working against each other. If I need it in a moment to fire, you know, myself up, to fire my teammates up or something like that, that's awesome. That's great. Use it, but then get on with it. Um, the one of the, one of the things that I I see that is really discouraging is if I go to you know some important tournaments and things like that. And I know you guys see this as well, and that is a negative influence on the bench, right? A coach running up down the bench, just screaming and just throwing a nutty on and on and on all throughout the game. Well, that that negative energy um, is seeping into the players that are sitting right under them, and so that's an important consideration as well. It's not just the the player. And their negative energy that can be, you know, an energy drain, but it's the negative sort of effects of others around them. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com, brought to you by Power Player, hockey player development software at ThePowerPlayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis about his book, Grit, Grind in Mind, and Managing Negative Emotions. When you speak to your clients, and of course there is, I think, two aspects if we're looking at hockey players, what's going on on the ice and controlling negative emotions. And sometimes negative emotions in terms of anger can be, you know, a benefit. But I'm really curious to, you know, how they manage it off the ice. Uh, Because when players are by themselves or they're in the group and they're just like things are running through their mind and there's a lot of things going on in the rink when you're playing the game, things can be more simplistic, but once you get away, then everything opens up. And what do you, like, what do you say to your clients about and the tools that they need to help them sort of manage those negative emotions, especially when things aren't going well on the ice? Yeah. Oh, that's a great, great point because at the end of the day, um, you know, our, our, the the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, um, it is situational dependent, but it's also becomes a habit, right? So it's possible that somebody that's in the habit of being negative away from the ice, right? That now that they've stepped on the ice, that it's not necessarily just that I turn that off and I'm instantly sort of, you know, skating with some positive energy and I, and I feel upbeat and optimistic about what we're doing Um, that it's not quite as clear cut. So I think there is an influence on, on performance, which is at the end of the day where players get measured, right? Is, is, are they able to get the job done? Who are they as, as a, as a player? Um, But at the other, other side of it is that, you know, if, if we're going to go around being negative, being frustrated, being anxious, being worried, then it, it sort of clouds our vision. It's like, you know, you're outside on a sunny day, so you put sunglasses on. Well, when you go in, right, you go inside and if you leave those sunglasses on, then everything is dark, right? Everything is, 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 is harder to see. And that's what happens with, with sort of having that negative mindset is that if I'm walking around with that negative mindset all the time, that when I'm 
stepping into a situation where I need clarity, I need focus, but yet I'm still wearing those sunglasses of a negative emotion, um, then I'm, I'm literally hurting my ability to, to be my best version of myself. Kevin, uh, there are certain players that rely on, what's the word choice I would use? Uh, maybe the word choice I should use is they rely on emotionally integrating into the fabric of the game so that they're basically an extension of the on-ice product. Meaning like there's certain pros that you see and they're basically, they look like they're almost an autopilot mode and nothing affects them. And then there's other players uh, like Elias Pettersson, Tim Stutzla, uh, who are exceptional players that actually bleed their emotion out on the ice. Is there, is there a different structure that you incorporate with those specific types of passion players that might inadvertently emotionally integrate uh, uh, with their frustration and have it you know, cave inwards on them and suppress their skill outright more than some other players who, again, are a little more on autopilot mode or, uh, autopilot mode or a little bit uh, less in terms of integrating? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and really the idea is that if I'm, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm pissed off and I'm on the ice, whether I show it or not, I'm still feeling it, right? So if I'm, if I'm trying to regulate that emotion so it doesn't impact my performance, that's, that says a lot. If I'm allowed to sort of get pissed off, but then it's gone, it's, it's you know, I've, I've let it go, um, then that's, that's another form of emotional uh, regulation. But the, the difference being is that if I play against somebody who is a robot, right. And, and nothing, nothing gets them, nothing, right. That's, that's a little bit intimidating. I'm, I'm starting to sort of wonder, Oh my God, this, this guy is a robot, right. I can't get to him at all versus somebody who's very emotional, gets really pissed off, gets really excited. They're just up and down, up and down. I think it's the opponent's ability to use that against them is would be the thing that I would just, coach them on is that, Hey, listen, when you get pissed off, you're giving ammunition to the opponent to maybe use that, to, to stoke that fire, to take you off your game. Uh, and that's one of the things that we, we tell our young players is that, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep that even keel because you don't want to give the, the other team a reason to, to, you know, sort of needle you and, and chirp you and stuff like that. Um, and, and the other side is, you know, I've, I've seen guys that go out there and nothing gets them down. They're, they're just, they play even keel, good or bad, doesn't matter. Uh, and, and they are, they're such a, a, a anomaly that I think it throws other people off their game. Now, I, I don't really know how to respond to somebody like that. So, you know, it, it, you, it, they actually use it to their advantage, whereas the other has that used against them. We're going to take a quick break on Hockey Prospect Radio, but we'll be back uh, talking about the mental side of the game right after these messages. Welcome back to Hockey Prospect Radio. Here's Shane Malloy and Brad Allen. We're back and powered by PowerPlayer, hockey player development software at thepowerplayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis in our regular segment, It's All Mental. He's a sports psychologist and mental coach. We are going through his book, Hockey Grit, Grind, and Mind, and we are just finishing up Chapter 6, which is Perseverance. The subtopic for this segment is become a perf- – oh, no, actually, no, it's managing negative emotions. Um, now, Dr. Willis, this is probably, and this is my estimation, the most challenging aspect of a human being's behavior 
is managing negative emotions and not letting that becoming the first thing that comes out. I think if in school in general, whether it be elementary school or high school, I think there should be a class that teaches kids how to, how to do that because will that ever save you a lot of grief in your life? If you know how to do it properly. Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny. Cause, but the, the problem is that we were, so we evolved to sort of slant towards the negative, to slant towards the danger, right? That's, that's what kept us alive is that we had just a, a little bit more acknowledgement of what could go wrong, what could be bad, um, what could, you know, eat us. Um, and so that's, we're fighting evolution with that. And so we, I think the best thing is just to recognize that, you know, I, I have to make a concerted effort to a recognize that I lean towards maybe being more negative than positive. But number two, I think we have to recognize what that means. What does that do to performance? What does that do to mindset? What does that do to, you know, behavior and feelings and being able to get along with others and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I go all the way back to the beginning. I think it's so important to be able to recognize how these things are affecting our ability to be our best. Um, That's, that's number one, but then having strategies to, you know, with how to deal with it. And I think negative emotions, the thing we have to understand about that is recognizing the, the, well, the negative impact that negative emotions have. And um, that really comes down to the idea that we've got a certain amount of energy that we bring to pretty much anything that we do, whether it's physical or mental energy. And when we are dealing in the negative, we are leaking that energy. It's like a bucket with a hole in it walking around, you know, it's leaking, it's leaking the water, it's leaking the energy. And that's what's so important to recognize is that we work so hard to train, to be fit, to, to have endurance, you know, to have psychological clarity and all that kind of stuff. But if we, if we're, you know, willing to sort of flirt with the negative side of things, uh, then we are risking running out of energy, mental energy, physical energy, and let's face it, that is not going to help you perform. Can you break down the the different types of negative emotional states that can sabotage you when you're trying to perform? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I bet you just about anybody, if you said, hey, list, you know, list all the negative uh, emotions that that people deal with, you know, they can come up with it really, really quick. But I think those ones in hockey, the ones that really, really affect players. And I, and I know you see it every single time you're out scouting people, you see it right. And these guys, they, they think they can hide it, but the, the fact is they can't. And it's things like anger, right? Frustration, anxiety, fear, uh, being discouraged. Uh, those are the things that really just submarine performance. They really is, is, as hard as you work, as much as you want it, it doesn't matter if you're anxious, if you're frustrated, if you're pissed off, right? Um, you know, and, and some people will say, well, no, I play better when I'm mad. If I, if I have an edge, I, I, I'm just, I'm a better player. And, and I'm not saying that's not true. That, that could very well be true. But I think over the long haul, you know, using anger as a motivator is sort of a double-edged sword because we know for a fact that anger is a negative emotion, negative emotions drain energy. And so if we use it ongoing, then we're sort of working against each other. If I need it in a moment to fire, you know, myself up to fire my teammates up or something like that. That's awesome. That's great. Use it, but then get on with it. 
Um, the one of the, one of the things that I I see that is really discouraging is if I go to you know some important tournaments and things like that. And I know you guys see this as well, and that is a negative influence on the bench, right? A coach running up down the bench, just screaming and just throwing a nutty on and on and on all throughout the game. Well, that that negative energy um, is seeping into the players that are sitting right under them, and so that's an important consideration as well. It's not just the the player and their negative energy that can be, you know, an energy drain, but it's the negative sort of effects of others around them. You're listening to Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio. I'm Shane Malloy with Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com, brought to you by Power Player, hockey player development software at ThePowerPlayer.com. We're speaking with Dr. Kevin Willis about his book, Grit, Grind, and Mind, and Managing Negative Emotions, when you speak to your clients, and of course there is, I think, two aspects if we're looking at hockey players, what's going on on the ice and controlling negative emotions, and sometimes negative emotions in terms of anger can be, you know, a benefit. But I'm really curious to, you know, how they manage it off the ice, uh, because when players are by themselves or they're in the group and they're just like things are running through their mind and there's a lot of things going on in the rink when you're playing the game, things can be more simplistic, but once you get away, then everything opens up. And what do you, like, what do you say to your clients about and the tools that they need to help them sort of manage those negative emotions, especially when things aren't going well on the ice? Yeah. Oh, that's a great, great point because at the end of the day, um, you know, our, our, the the way we think, the way we feel, the way we act, um, it is situational dependent, but it's also becomes a habit, right? So it's possible that somebody that's in the habit of being negative away from the ice, right? That now that they've stepped on the ice, that it's not necessarily just that I turn that off and I'm instantly sort of, you know, skating with some positive energy and I, and I feel upbeat and optimistic about what we're doing. Um, That it's not quite as clear cut. So I think there is an influence on, on performance, which is at the end of the day where players get measured, right? Is, is, are they able to get the job done? Who are they as, as a, as a player? Um, but at the other, other side of it is that, you know, if, if we're going to go around being negative, being frustrated, being anxious, being worried, then it, it sort of clouds our vision. It's like, you know, you're outside on a sunny day. So you put sunglasses on. Well, when you go in, right, you go inside. And if you leave those sunglasses on, then everything is dark, right? Everything is, 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 is harder to see. And that's what happens with, with sort of having that negative mindset is that if I'm walking around with that negative mindset all the time, that when I'm stepping into a situation where I need clarity, I need focus, but yet I'm still wearing those sunglasses of a negative emotion, um, then I'm, I'm literally hurting my ability to, to be my best version of myself. Kevin, uh, there are certain players that rely on what's the word choice I would use. Uh, maybe the word choice I should use is they rely on emotionally integrating into the fabric of the game so that they're basically an extension of the on ice product. Meaning like there are certain pros that you see and they're basically, they look like they're almost an autopilot mode and nothing affects them. And then there's other players uh, like Elias Pedersen, Tim Stutzla, uh, who are exceptional players that actually bleed their emotion out on the ice. Is there, is there a different structure that you incorporate with those specific types of passion players that might inadvertently 
emotionally integrate uh, uh, and, uh, with their frustration and have it, you know, cave inwards on them and suppress their skill outright more than some other players who, again, are a little more on an autopilot mode or uh, autopilot mode or a little bit uh, less in terms of integrating. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and really the idea is that if I'm, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm pissed off and I'm on the ice, whether I show it or not, I'm still feeling it, right? So if I'm, if I'm trying to regulate that emotion so it doesn't impact my performance, that's, that says a lot. If I'm allowed to sort of get pissed off, but then it's gone, it's, it's you know, I've, I've let it go, um, then that's, that's another form of emotional uh, regulation. But the, the difference being is that if I play against somebody who is a robot, right, and, and nothing, nothing gets them, nothing, right, that's, that's a little bit intimidating. I'm, I'm starting to sort of wonder, oh, my God, this, this guy is a robot, right? I can't get to him at all versus somebody who's very emotional, gets really pissed off, gets really excited. They're just up and down, up and down. I think it's the opponent's ability to use that against them is, would be the thing that I would just coach them on is that, hey, listen, when you get pissed off, you're giving ammunition to the opponent to maybe use that. To, to stoke that fire, to take you off your game. Uh, and that's one of the things that we, we tell our young players is that, you know, you've got to, you've got to keep that even keel because you don't want to give the, the other team a reason to, to, you know, sort of needle you and, and chirp you and stuff like that. Um, and, and the other side is, you know, I've, I've seen guys that go out there and nothing gets them down. They're, they're just, they play even keel, good or bad, doesn't matter. Uh, and, and they are, they're such a, uh, anomaly that I think it throws other people off their game. Now, I, I don't really know how to respond to somebody like that. So, you know, it, it, you, it, they actually use it to their advantage, whereas the other has that used against them. Thank you, Dr. Willis, for your great insight. And we look forward to speaking to you next week uh, on the topic of grit, grind, and mind. This has been another episode of Hockey Prospect Radio on Sirius XM NHL Network Radio, powered by Instat Hockey offering the largest data and video library of players, teams, and leagues worldwide. You can listen to our show on your favorite podcast network or on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter at HP Radio and HockeyProspectRadio.com. Thank you to all our guests. I'm Shane Malloy, and for Brad Allen from HockeyProspect.com, we will see you at the rink.